All right. Why don't you turn to Haggai chapter 2, please. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 20 through 23. The message is entitled, God's Word Brings Great Assurance. When Paul came to Corinth, he was opposed greatly, and he probably was a bit discouraged, and we certainly know that he was afraid, possibly because the city was so corrupt. But God spoke to him and assured him that he was with him. This always makes a difference. Listen to what it says. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And as you know, he established the Corinthian church, a great work. What a difference it makes when we hear directly from God, regardless of what you're going through. People can encourage you, all kinds of things, but nothing like God speaking to you very personally. And so, we want to look at the promise of God to Zerubbabel here that assures him about the throne of David, that it would be ultimately established, and it's characterized by three things. Let me read verse 20 to 23. He says, And again the word of the Lord came to Haggai the, on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. The promise of God to Zerubbabel, assuring him that the Davidic line and throne would be established, is characterized by the following three things. First, we have the prophetic revelation. In verse 20 to the first part of 21. Secondly, we have the prophetic consolation. The rest of 21 and 22. And thirdly, you have the prophetic declaration in verse 23. He begins with the prophetic revelation. Notice verse 20. The prophet Haggai received his last prophecy here. Mark it well. The same phrase is recorded. In Again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. So the manner in which the prophecy was uh, made known to Haggai is not described to us, but simply follows the fourfold repetition of the words, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 1, 2, 10, 2, 20. Now, we are not told that it came through a vision, a dream. We're not told it was just an impression on his mind. We're not told if... Perhaps God spoke to him audibly. We're just told that the word of the Lord came to him. Now, all these other modes and manners by which I've just mentioned, we find in Scripture. Um, to Moses, God in Exodus 6, 10 through 11 says, The Lord God spoke to Moses saying, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of the land. So he spoke to him, we take it literally, that God spoke to him audibly. Now, I've never heard God audibly, okay? But Moses did and others did. The book of Numbers twenty three sixteen. you have the prophet Balaam, where he used to be a prophet of God and he turned away from God. Listen to what he says. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. 
One of the most incredible prophecies regarding Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is through the mouth of Balaam. And he turned to be a false prophet. Amazing. In Jeremiah 1.9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. What should we say about Joseph who received God's revelation through dreams and then the ability to interpret? We're going to get to Zechariah. You know, he has his vision after vision. <laughs> God was ministering to him, communicating his will and purposes. Now, the prophetic revelation, once again, is dated for us on the 24th day of the month. This uh, was again... Again, divine revelation, very important. Being sourced in God like the others that Haggai has received. Thirty times the name Yahweh here, all capital letters, Lord, appears. The covenant God, the one who um, had made a covenant with them, the one had put him in captivity, the one that not had brought him out of captivity. The phrase, thus saith the Lord, appears 26 times in 38 verses. Only two chapters, 38 verses. The authority is his. His alone. No one else's. The phrase captain uh, of the armies of heaven is ascribed by the title Lord of hosts. He is uh, the one who defends his own people. He is the one who has never been defeated. He is the one that can stand against anyone or anything. No one can say, what are you doing? Now notice the prophet Haggai received his directive for his last prophecy, God is the one who not only reveals, but he says who it goes to and who's to fulfill and everything else. Haggai was to direct this last prophecy to Zerubbabel alone. He says, speak to Zerubbabel. As you know, Zerubbabel had been born in Babylon and lived there all his life. Um, in fact, his name uh, in Babylon was um, Shesh Bazar meaning worshiper of God. You find this in Ezra 1.8, 1.11, 5.14, 5.14, 5.16. We don't know if maybe that was a name that was given to him by the Babylonians. We're not told. But because we're not told, probably his parents give it to him and God says he's a consuming fire. We're not positive, but that's what his name means. Now, he possibly had seen and heard Ezekiel preach since he lived in Babylon and was born there. And act out many, one of his many charades, as you know, that Ezekiel did as he covered his face and took a knapsack and put a hole in the wall and he crawled through it to demonstrate how Zedekiah was going to flee and but Babylon, the Nebuchadnezzar would still catch him. One of many. The others he would uh, cut some hair off and three he would throw to the wind, two in his belt and some in the fire to declare how God was going to just... Destroyed Jerusalem and the people in it. Very effective communicator. He certainly heard about Daniel in the palace of Susa or Susa, Shusa, Shushan or Susa, either one. And um, the interpreting of um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream that God had given to him. Let alone he probably heard about the event of the lions then, how God shut the mouth of the lions. And many other things. This was, this was his world. That's all he knew. And most likely, he probably admired these prophets. Daniel in the palace. Ezekiel with the people. But, while admiring these men, he could have never imagined that 
one day he was going to be a prophet for God. You see, none of us know what God has for us in the future. There have been people who have sat in the very seats you have sat in the past 36 years. They got saved and they began to sit and to learn and to grow and be used of God. And today, some of them are pastors, pastoring churches. Others have come alongside other ministries and after all the training they've had, they've been an asset. And some of them are going to be used more than I will ever be used. You don't know what God has for you. Notice Zerubbabel is identified by his office at Jerusalem, governor of Judah. He was the one responsible for the first Jewish remnant that returned at the decree of Cyrus in 537 B.C. You find this in Ezra 5.14. And the first captives numbered about 49,897, a very small contingent for the whole of the captivity. You see, the Jews were attached to the land, agriculture, the people in the land go together. But once they went into captivity, they learned the business, marketing. Many of them didn't want to come back. They became very wealthy. They have never lost that. The Jewish community is very attached to business. Throughout the world. But it's interesting that God has brought them back in 48 and now they're back on the land and, and they're incredible now they're with their agriculture. They gave us our drip system and many other things. <laughs> they do farming on, on, on salt water. Amazing. They desalinated their whole water system. They don't have a water system anymore. They take water from the ocean. They have plenty of water now. Wow. What a novel idea. He was appointed by Cyrus to be governor of Judah. But yet God's hand was upon all of this. The return had um, taken place according to the prophecies that God had given to Jeremiah. Chapter 25, verse 12, 29, 10, and many others. Exactly according to God. Now Judah, prior to the captivity, um, was used to refer to the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes for David. Israel was the northern kingdom of the ten tribes. But now after the captivity, there was to be only one nation, the nation of Israel. No one else. And many of these remnant had to prove their genealogy, as we know in Ezra chapter 2. If they didn't, couldn't prove their genealogy, they couldn't be involved. Zerubbabel was God's man for the job, for this time. The work that he had prepared for him. But we're going to see that God has something more for him in the future. You know, the word of the Lord, Jesus, is all the authority that we need as believers as he speaks to us through his word. But I think of, um, of this point and how it's illustrated so vividly when God spoke to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. 
How God has a plan for you and myself to walk in it. When I first came to the Lord, I had no idea what God had. I just, you know, living my life, going to school, working and, you know, and, and doing Bible studies and whatever. And then God just, a little bit of time, just begins to direct and guide your life. You have no idea what God has in store for you. Nobody could have planned this. Anybody who tries to say credit is crazy. It's insane. When's the last time God spoke to you very personally? And very specific. Was it to encourage you and to stand strong in his might? Because you were depending on yours? Was it to warn you about your life choices? Or to discipline you? How did you respond? Was it to pray for someone? That God directed you to them. Was it to instruct you in the word in order to guide you that you might be victorious in the test and trial that you're going through? Listen to um, wisdom speaking from the Proverbs. As you know, the first nine chapters is the personification of wisdom through a woman. And it's dealing with the, the wise and the simple, the, the foolish young man. And in... Proverbs 1, 20-23, it says, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She rises, raises her voice in the open square. She cries out in the chief corner, concourses. At the opening of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. The wisdom, the woman wisdom, just running after the young man and the young woman and crying that they depend upon her. And she says, one day you will call upon me at the gates and I will mock you. I will not respond to you anymore. And having to reap the sour graves that have been planted. Has Jesus ever spoken to you to speak to someone, maybe to help them through the difficult times that they're going through? God knows. God is able to direct and guide us. To encourage them in their marriage, perhaps, that is on shaky grounds right now. And God knows that he wants to use you. Maybe because you went through some things uh, or maybe because God just wants to use you and you didn't go through any of those things. So we don't have to go through the things to be able to minister to others. If that was the case, then I wouldn't be able to minister to drug addicts and, you know, other things that I never did, right? Our authority and ability to minister is that God sends us and His Holy Spirit convicts and deals with the person's heart. Not my experience, okay? That's humanism. That's sociology. That's psychology. Okay? Transformation is quite superior to, uh, to behavioral modification. That's inferior. Maybe to reprove or warn someone who's in sin as they're bringing destruction to their own life, let alone their families. And you're a faithful friend. And you do so with tears in your heart and your eyes. Not with some contentment to bust them or simply castigate them or exalt yourself above them. Maybe to correct them because they have been deceived by heretical doctrine which they have not only embraced but now they're propagating as if it's the latest thing since ice cream. 
Hmm. Listen to what Paul tells us Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14 says, Now, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one uh, renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourself and for all. What a great exhortation to all of us. Covers every facet of it. You see, the prophetic revelation to the Ruba was to be received in faith. God speaks to us. Faith is always directed back to the revelation of God. Notice, secondly, comes the prophetic um, consolation in the rest of 21 and 22. In 21 there, God gave to Haggai four messages. As I said, 1-1, 2-1, 2-10, and 2-20. The first on September the 1st, as we've seen in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, the prophetic... Prophetic utterance there was addressed to Zerubbabel and Joshua. The revelation was to assure the two men about two things. That God had brought the people back from captivity to do his work to build the temple. Secondly, that God knew their selfish, apathetic indifference to the will and the work of God. See, God's the only one that can do that and know that. No one else. The outcome was that the people repented, as we've seen, 23 days later. The second message was on the 21st day of October in chapter 2, verse 1. And the prophetic utterance came 51 days after the first and was addressed this time to three individuals. Zerubbabel and Joshua again, and then to the remnant of the people. The revelation was to assure them of certain things. First, that the past glory of Solomon's temple was surpassing to that of Zerubbabel. God lives in reality. He deals with reality. God doesn't say, uh, no, don't look at what's happening. Just make believe it's okay. God calls us to live in reality. Second, that the temple of Zerubbabel would have in the future a greater glory. Why? Because God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, would be walking in that temple and teaching in that temple. See, there's only been two temples, the Temple of Solomon and the Temple of Zerubbabel. Herod's temple is not a third temple. He merely expanded and beautified Zerubbabel's temple. There's only two. But thirdly, the ultimately, the kingdom temple would surpass all previous glories, that would be the millennial temple, because that's the climax. Jesus Christ is ruling, and David ruling alongside him, and we're ruling with him during the thousand-year reign. The Shekinah glory is present in every way, superior to all. Now, the third came 33 days after the second message on the 24th day of December, and that is found in chapter 2, verse 10. And... The revelation addressed the priests, plural, this time. The revelation was to assure them of two things, that God was concerned with their holiness, verse 10 through 14. Second, that God was going to bless the labor of their hands from that day forward since they repented, verse 15 through 19. He says, you mark this day. 
What your harvest has done over here, now from this day forward, hands down. Because you've repented. And now you're obeying me. Wow. Keep that principle right in your Bible. The fourth came on the same day as the third message on the 24th day of the same month, December, which we're studying. The revelation addressed the Rubel alone now. The revelation was to assure two things, that God would establish the Davidic throne as he had promised. God cannot lie. It was first given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's repeated throughout all the prophets. That's the one he's talking about. And also that God would use Zerubbabel in the last days. Now the prophecies of Haggai contain four messages to be delivered within four months from September to December of 520 B.C. The exact time if you compute it on the 30-day calendar of the Bible, it would be about three months and 23 days total. That's pretty short time. I mean, we're already at the end of the second month of this year. <laughs> and this is, I mean, God could have used Haggai even longer. We don't know. All we have is what we have. We can't teach from the absence of Scripture. So we have to conclude that his prophecy and his work was for four months and it was over. Okay. So, what if God has just one thing for you and you miss it? You remember Esther? Haman, Mordecai? <laughs> and Esther's uncle says, it's okay if you don't want to do it. What if God has brought you for such a time and such a, time and such a place as this, just for this? But if not, God's deliverance will come some other way. You see, God's not biting his nails whether I'm going to walk in obedience to everything that he has for me. If I miss it, he'll get somebody else to do it. No big deal. Who loses? I do. I don't understand how all that works. Notice God gave Zerubbabel a fourfold assurance that he would, in fact, establish the Davidic throne by the phrase, I will. The end of verse 21 all the way to 22. I will, I will, I will, I will. Four times. In 21 there at the end, God will bring cataclysmic judgment using nature prior to the establishment of the kingdom of David. I will shake heaven and earth. This again marks the tribulation and great tribulation. So we're going from the present all the way to the future. This is a confirmation of what Haggai revealed already, that God would shake heaven and earth, the seas, the dry land, and all nations that we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. This time period is given as a total of seven years divided into two halves, two three-and-a-half increments. Daniel 9, 27, the Antichrist will make a covenant with, the, with Israel and he will break it in the middle. The first three and a half years period of the Antichrist will rule under false peace, deceiving the entire world. Revelation 6, he appears on a horse, white horse, peace, with a bow, no arrow. He conquers through diplomacy. The last three and a half years will be 
the absolute tyrannical rule of the man of sin, the Antichrist, as he enters the temple that he builds for the Jews, declares himself to be God and demands that everybody worship him, taking his number on the right hand or the forehead. Or you cannot buy, you cannot sell, and you will have to be killed, beheaded. Interesting. Matthew twenty four fifteen, Jesus says, the abomination of desolation. When you see that, talking to the Jews, flee to the wilderness. Wow. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, Paul gives us the passage of the man of sin, the Antichrist, that is no found nowhere else when he goes into that temple and declares himself God. The Jews have plans to build their temple. They're itching to build their temple. The last half of the seven years is said to be when Israel flees to the city of Petra in the wilderness. Isaiah 16, 1. Revelation 12, 14 speaks about the period. Listen. When she flees to the wilderness, God will protect her and it's described as time, times, half a time. So it's given an increment of seven years, then two halves. Times, one year. Times, double, three, half a time. Three and a half years. The same period is given in days also, so we don't miss it. 1,260 days, Revelation 12, 6. The time period is also given in months, 42 months, indicating the last three and a half years when the Antichrist speaks blasphemies in Revelation 11, 2 and 13, 5. So you have it in years, you have it in days, you have it in months to make sure you don't miss it, okay? God will defeat also powerful world empires through other empires. Listen to the second I will. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, verse 22, the beginning. God is the one in control over the nations of the world. And he brings and allows nations to conquer other nations. I will overthrow, he says. Underline that. Though God uses nations, he's doing it. He's allowing it. God revealed the first four kingdoms he would overthrow in the time of the Gentiles. He's already mentioned that. He's not dealing with that here. But we know that Babylon was overthrown by Medo-Persia, and then Persia took over, Media dropped off, and then Media or Persia was overcome by Greece, and Greece was overcome by Rome. Then you have a little uh, prophetic clock stop, and then it will pick up again in the seven-year tribulation of the Antichrist, tribulation, great tribulation. God did not reveal the ruling nations after Rome, but the principle stands. He knew the nations, and he will allow the nations to be overthrown, to be conquered by his very hand ever since. Interesting that if Hitler would have fulfilled his desire for a world empire, you could have thrown your Bible away. Because the prophecies of the time of the Gentiles shows no world empire until the Antichrist. Between Rome and the Antichrist, there are no world empires. Now, that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. God is more powerful than any world ruler. Indicated 
by the word, the throne of kingdoms, plural. Be a king, be a religious ruler, a monarch, or a president. God will ultimately defeat the last world kingdom prior to the second coming. Thirdly, notice he says, I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. We've already seen that those on the image are already dealt with. Now he's looking all the way to the future. The time of the Gentiles began with Babylon and ends with the Antichrist. The ten toes of Nebuchadnezzar's image comprises of iron and clay, a type of democracy, but it doesn't really hold together. It's not cohesive. It's the ten-nation confederacy that will give their power and authority to the Antichrist. Daniel 2.41 and 2.43, Revelation 7.24, through 13 to give you a few. We have all this detail. It is not cloudy. It is not, you know, nebulous. It is very, very clear and specific. And as we look at the world and as we hear the politicians, we see it and we hear it and we see it coming to pass very, very fast today. God will defeat the armies of the world. Listen to the last one. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. This is the battle of Armageddon. Psalm 2, the preview that we saw last week. Revelation 19, the literal battle. As we return with Jesus Christ to set up the kingdom. This will usher in the judgment of the nations that is talked about in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Remember, Matthew 24 and 25 is Jewish ground. It's like Twinkies, they go together. Like beans and tortillas, you can't separate them. All right? And so, the judgment when Jesus says there that, he says, you, you visited me in prison, you gave me a drink of cold water, and they say, when did we do this? He says, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. Who's his brethren? Jewish crown. The Jews, the nation of Israel. How the nations treated the Jews during the great tribulation and tribulation. Wow. Genesis 12, 3. Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. That is always in effect, ladies and gentlemen. Always in effect. Look at nations who have gone against Israel. See what's happened to them. See where they're at. No coincidence. Jesus accepted the Old Testament as historical and literal. And that there would be an absolute fulfillment of every prophecy. Listen carefully. Matthew 5.18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The smallest letter or marking a stroke over the letter will be fulfilled. Amazing. So where's the doubt regarding prophecy? What are the basis for the skeptics? And what do they base it on? Are they superior to Jesus Christ? Because they have a PhD before their name? Wow. The Christians have absolute assurance about things that the world is still trying to figure out, ladies and gentlemen. 
We know God created the world out of nothing. He just spoke it into being, the word bara. Just spoke it into being. The non-believer tries to explain the Big Bang. Or by natural selection of the evolutionary process with billions of years brought this to pass. The only Big Bangs in their head you would have a greater chance of you driving down the freeway with your arm hanging out the window and there was an explosion in a building as you're driving by and all of a sudden a Rolex lands on your wrist. There's a better chance for that. The simple cell is not as simple as they say it is. If you've taken biology, you know that there isn't enough time factor in trillions, billions of years for the simple cell to even come about by chance randomly. It's very complex, very complex. We know God created man, male and female, to complete one another and to repopulate the earth through marriage, not through living together. The unbeliever believes man is the highest form of the animal evolutionary model and that now we are still evolving. So they teach now in the universities that our sexuality is not determined by birth, but rather throughout your life as you are continuing to evolve. Really? So you may be a he today and a she tomorrow, or maybe a he, she the next day, or it's really atrocious. There's, it's just horrible what's happening in our society. Society will implode, ladies and gentlemen. Your person is defined by one of two categories, male or female. Your race, your color, your feelings, your religion, or anything else does not define your person. You are defined by male and female and distinct from the animal kingdom. You take any other category, you just destroyed the human race. You got big problems. So much for the brilliant academic people. We believe every human being will spend eternity in heaven or hell, separated from God, based on whether they repent from their sins and believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins by rising from the dead. The unbeliever has myriads of belief systems, some philosophical, some religious. Um, but nevertheless, they do not believe in what the scriptures declare. They believe that there is a God who loves them regardless of how they live and that God would not be judgmental, stuff like that. Well, they can take it up with them when they see him. doesn't really matter. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Literally, no God. Now some want to be very intellectual. They say, well, I'm an agnostic. All right, so you're ignorant. Let me, let me educate you. There is a God. Now you're not ignorant. Now you can only be an, an atheist. Interesting. Play games. Bad games. 
The prophecies in the Word of God bring more assurance to the Christian because we know what's going to happen in the future. We know. This world is going to get worse and more ungodly. I told you these four years that we fulfill them, it'll be just a window of time of mercy. That's all it will be. We're right on schedule. This world will experience the removal of a multitude of people in the rapture of the church one day. They'll explain that E.T. took us home. They're going to have a blast taking over our houses, our cars, our bank accounts, all of that. The world's going to be very wealthy. The world will end, and then Jesus will establish his kingdom as we rule with him. Those that didn't take the mark of the beast repopulate the earth. Satan is bound for a thousand years. But there'll still be sin and death in the millennial kingdom. Even though he's redone the earth and the animals have no more ferocity. Um, But certain things remain. Wherever you have death, you have sin. Because death is a result of sin. It isn't until after the white throne judgment, the new heaven, the new earth, that everything will be no tears, no sorrows, no nothing. Not in the millennial kingdom. For us, we're glorified, but for the people that we populate, no. You realize that 20% of the Bible, or one-fifth, either one, contains prophecy. God places a great importance on you studying prophecy. and not. I hope you don't believe, like Rick Warren does, that you're wasting your time studying prophecy. I wouldn't hang out with him. He might be the nicest guy. I'm sure he is. But where he says, I'm wasting my time studying prophecy, he's unbiblical. Dangerously unbiblical. Listen to Peter. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, change that word, of no origin or personal impulse. It's not of any private impulse or origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, literally carried 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Wow. God's word. The prophetic consolation to Zerubbabel was to strengthen his faith. Strengthen his faith. Difficult time they're going through. Notice thirdly, verse 23, the prophetic declaration. God had a plan for Zerubbabel in the far future, as we said. The specific time is given and is emphatic in that day. Underline that, circle it. In that day. It indicates a period of tribulation, great tribulation. In that day, you also find that day throughout the scriptures. And it's mentioned by all the major and minor prophets with the exception of a couple. This day is when the day of man will come to a close. The authority is also given, notice, says the Lord of hosts. The title, as we stated, means the captain of the armies of heaven. The omnipotent, unafraid, unbeaten creator. The certainty of the prophetic event is guaranteed by God. Listen, I will take you through my servant, the son of Sheltiel, says the Lord Yahweh. The initiator, I will take you. God's sovereignty decides. God takes people, but not because they're talented, but because he desires to use them for his glory. 
When God uses us, ladies and gentlemen, it's just His mercy and His grace and His love. Not because we're so talented or, you know, proficient in what we do. The person, Zerubbabel, notice he says, my servant. The word servant is one subject to the purposes of God. This goes back to the Old Testament. One who would be used of God in the future, but is that servant who uh, would, of his own accord, submit himself to his master after six years of service, having paid his debt, and said, I love you so much, I don't want to be let loose. So he would take his slave to the doorpost of his house, take a hammer and all, put his ear there, put a hole in it, put an earring on it. When you saw a man with an earring, he was a slave by choice for his life with his master. This is what Haggai is. My servant. Then notice God had a specific call for Zerubbabel in that last day. He was given a high privilege. And I will make you like a signet ring. In ancient times, the signet ring was related to the authority of the crown, the throne, or the scepter. Ahab had, Ahab had um, one, and his wicked wife Jezebel, if you remember, used the seal of the letter that framed Nabal and sealed his death in 1 Kings 21 8. Darius used the ring like that to seal the decree concerning the lion's den in Daniel 6, 17. King Ahasuerus or Xerxes also used the ring to seal his decree in Esther 8, 8. This authority had been removed from Jehoiachin, remember, Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. It was a sign of sonship and ownership, a sign of authority, a sign of honor. Zerubbabel, remember, was the grandson of Jehoiachin, also named Coniah or Jeconiah, a descendant of David through the king's line of Jehoiakim also. First Chronicles 3, 2 Kings um, 24, 15, and other places give us that. So you have both of these guys, the kingly line and the priestly line. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Right now he's focusing on Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, by the way, is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew one twelve. <laughs> now notice Zerubbabel was to have a high honor. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. God knows the end from the beginning. He cannot make a mistake. He knows everything and cannot learn anything. You and I will learn something until the day we die. And yet as we get older, it's hard, more difficult to find those things once we put them in here. <laughs> he has foreknowledge that proceeds from his omniscience. Omniscience means he knows everything. Foreknowledge he, he means he knows it before it happens. But the foreknowledge comes out of his omniscience, not the reverse, like Calvinism teaches. That's wrong. God sovereignly chose Zerubbabel. I have chosen you, he says. He chooses individuals for a set time, for a set purpose, but never violating their will. How can that work? I don't know. He alone knows who will obey, who will not obey. And sometimes, even in spite of this disobedience, God still uses them. And chooses them. You want to try Moses on for sight? How about David? I got a better one. How about you? Me. 
He never forces anyone to be his servant. You've got to open your ear to him of your own will because you love him. You find that in Exodus 21, 5 through 6 where the servant makes that commitment. What exactly and to what extent is this prophecy for Zerubbabel is debated. Some see it merely as a fulfillment of the promise of God for the Davidic line. Others think he might be one of the two witnesses that are going to be going against the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. Now, there are two men who have never died physically, Enoch and Elijah. And the book of Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man to die once, then the judgment. They're the only two that have never died physically. Now, God is going to use his two witnesses against the Antichrist. And then God's going to allow the Antichrist to kill them. And they will lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three days. Every hour will be upon them. And we have the technology today. And after the three days, the Spirit of God will go into them. And they'll rise up and go up to heaven. And the world will know they're in big trouble. They will send presents to one another. They'll be so glad to kill these two witnesses. Listen to Revelation 11.3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, the dress of a prophet afflicting their soul, calling people to repentance. Revelation 11.7 says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. By the way, in the, through the book of Revelation, God gives the authority. God gives them. God allows all these things. He sets the boundaries. So, the possibility has several candidates. Elisha, for sure, is one of the two witnesses. Malachi 4, 5 tells us. John the Baptist came in the power of the spirit of Elisha, not the ultimate fulfillment. He will come literally. He'll be one of them. Top on the list are the two that have never died. Enoch and Elisha, if we want to just use the principle of, math, of Hebrews 9.27, that everybody has to die, then they would be the top two. But some think Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses due to the miracles they perform during the Great Tribulation of shutting up the heavens of rain and of um, power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire, Revelation 11, 6 says. Yet Zerubbabel is promised an important work in the last days of the Great Tribulation, which could be one of the two witnesses. We're not sure. So I give you all of them, the possibilities. But whatever it is, he has a part. It could be that Enoch and Elijah, because they haven't died, are fulfilled. But there's a work for Zerubbabel. God alone knows exactly what that is. By the way, if you read the book of Revelation, God has a, a work for John, the beloved, also in the last days. Okay? There's a lot of little nuggets you've got to you know, look carefully. What are you doing to get prepared for what God has for you tomorrow? Stephen um, began as a deacon. And when there became murmuring over the Hellenist widows, thinking they were being 
dealt with unfairly. He was put as one of the deacons to oversee that work in the book of Acts. And then God used him to preach the gospel to the Cyrenians. And then God had him to die for his faith, crying out, Lord, forgive them for they know not what to do, just like his master on the cross. Your obedience today will prepare you for tomorrow's work that God has. And the next day, and the next day. You cannot put it on cruise control, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know what God has called you to do? Or to be in the body of Christ? Whether it's here or wherever God takes you. Are you walking in that calling? Are you seeking the Lord for his direction every day? Are you growing, developing, and maturing spiritually in the word of God? Do you value the word of God like Job? He says, I esteem God's word more than my daily substance. Are you aware that it is all based on the grace of God, by the way? Whatever it is he does. Colossians 4.17, listen to it. Paul says to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I could have never imagined what God had for my life. Not my wildest dreams. Are you preparing yourself for the things Jesus has for you in the near, in the far future? Or are you comfortable and complacent spiritually, just kicking it? Perhaps you think God could not use you. But you look at me every week. If God can use me, he can use you. Trust me. What do you see yourself doing in the Lord? If he would tarry the next 20 years. No idea what God has for you. Are you being prepared for it? Are you preparing yourself? Are you looking to him? If it's the same thing you are doing and that's all you're going to do, that's fine. You'll do it better. You'll do it more humbler. You do it to the glory of God. But God usually prepares you to do other things and to advance you and to mature you. He presses you forward. Listen to Paul the Apostle as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. He says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of, uh, of, of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. This is not for heaven. This is for the here and now. Sean Hannity quotes this all the time for when you get to heaven. <clears throat> F on, on the subject of Bible. This is for here and now. 
You have no idea what he has for you next week. Next year. But you're to be preparing yourself for it. See, a lot of young people, you single people, you come here with a checklist looking for a chick or a husband, okay? And you got your checklist. Listen, you're to be preparing yourself to be the right person, not looking for the right person. We got it backwards. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How are we doing? Romans ten seventeen. That's why it's important that you're here on Sunday and Sunday evening, midweek, that you're involved in ministry. Listen, your eternity depends on it. Your abundant life depends on it. The blessing on your children, the protection on your home. Wow. The prophetic declaration of the Zerubbabel was to increase his faith. And so the assured promise of God to Zerubbabel was that the throne of David would ultimately be established. It's characterized by the prophetic revelation to Zerubbabel that he was to receive in faith. The prophetic consolation to Zerubbabel was to strengthen his faith. And the prophetic declaration to Zerubbabel was to increase his faith. Do you think this might be practical for us in our day? <laughs> or do you think God made a mistake in putting this chapter in? <laughs> God is so good, doesn't he? The word is never out of date, ladies and gentlemen. It's always fresh and alive. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you. Lord, we pray that you deal with us, you direct and guide us, that we would be open to you, Lord, and you would do a greater work here in Pasadena than you ever have before, bringing people in and just saving them and turning their lives around, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to hear the Word of God. Whether you're in the balcony, the floor, or maybe you're over... The internet or maybe on the radio. If you believe Jesus Christ as God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you can call upon him and he will forgive you your sins and he will save you and give you eternal life. Not my words, the words of Jesus. You must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. If this is your desire by God's grace as he's convicted you of your sin, and open your eyes, spirits, to see your lost condition. This is your prayer repentance to the Lord. And he's going to save you right now. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.